0: to say what pastors all over uh, the city and the state and the country are saying, which is just Happy Mother's Day. I, I didn't forget. <laughs> I almost forgot. Um, and I, I have, Laura reminded me that uh, last year I read a poem for Mother's Day that uh, I think encapsulates, in, I don't know if it's a poem or a written word kind of thing, but is nicely written and encapsulates all the things that as a pastor I want to communicate uh, to mothers, and uh, to the church as a whole on Mother's Day, Um, and so I'm going to read it, and here it is. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. And I don't think we have any here, but uh, we would be celebrating with you. (laughs) To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. And forgive us when we say foolish things we don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, We need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. And to those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we do acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, lost my place, sorry, and the overall testing of motherhood, a true statement, if ever there was one, we are better for having you in our midst. And to those who are single, perhaps who long to be married and mothering your own children, we do mourn that life has not turned out the way that you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, God bless you. It's mine. <laughs> we walk with you on these complex paths. And to those who envision lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you as well. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. <laughs> I think is the, the appropriate That's right. (laughs) To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness. And we remember how you hold that child in your heart. To those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. And this Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have warriors. We remember you. I love that poem. It's a good one. I think it literally covers all the bases. <laughs> or if it doesn't, come and talk to me, and there'll be another sentence next Mother's Day. It is part of the truth of Mother's Day, and one to be reminded every year that there's so much joy and so much to be grateful for. But just like with fathers and with mothers, there's so much else complicated within it is that are not. So, such is life. Let me say a quick prayer before we uh, jump into this. Um, Lord, I ask ask for your mercy right now, for your grace, and I pray that these words I'm about to speak would truly, genuinely uh, be your words, that they would be words that encourage, words that inspire, uh, words that open us up to your truths that are eternal, not Seth's truths or my truths that are temporary and sometimes not even true but your truths, Lord. I pray that you would be merciful to me, the, the preacher. Amen. We're back in Ezra. And if you recall, Ezra had gathered the Levites and the people that he felt he needed uh, to return uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, that it's, a, it's a whole other exodus, a whole other movement of people uh, to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land. And this was the passage right before that. I'm not going to read this, but basically it talks about how he assembled his people and he brought the Levites, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Go ahead to the next slide there, uh, shall we? So there, and this is Ezra speaking, there by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed, to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen. Remember, this is the Persian, they're in the Persian Empire. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road, because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. And of course that line, he answered our prayer, is Ezra, the Ezra who's writing that? They knew once they arrived in Jerusalem safely that he had answered their prayer. They didn't know it at that point uh, in, in, the, in the time frame. So it's him looking back. <clears throat> this caught my attention maybe the second or third time I read it. Um, that's how things work, right? You read things, things through the first time and you're like, well, yeah, that's a Bible verse and it makes sense. And, there's God, and you move on, and then you read it a second time, and then the third time, and all of a sudden something catches you. And what caught me here was, why doesn't Ezra ask protection on the road from the king? Why does he risk life and limb of himself and his companions on this journey of three to 400 miles? Now the right answer, or the, the answer of faith, the answer that uh, one would expect a person of faith, a priest like Ezra, to give. Because God called me to Jerusalem. God, God's in this. He called us to go to Jerusalem. He will ensure that I will arrive. This is my calling. God wants me to survive this trip and will keep us from being harmed. That, is that not an answer of faith, from a man of faith? God is good. Or, uh, that's a moral answer, but some of you Here, too, today, which is true. God is good. He wouldn't let me suffer or die on this road to to Jerusalem that he's called me to. And that's a faithful answer. It's a biblical answer. It's not the answer that we see up there on the screen. You might expect an answer like, uh, you know, Ezra knows his Bible very well. He knows the, the Hebrew scriptures, the ones that were present up to that point. He might uh, bring to mind the story of Elisha and the Arameans. The the Jewish army is fighting against the the Arameans. And there's that famous passage where uh, Elisha's servant looks out the window and he sees that they're surrounded by the Aramean army. He says, oh no, we're in trouble. We have a tiny army, they have a big one. This is simple math. (laughs) And uh, Elisha prays and says, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opens the eyes of his servant. He looks and he sees... Hills full of chariots that are, to just add more drama, on fire. Fiery chariots. Chariots surrounding the Aramean army that belonged to the Lord. And of course, that would have been a story that Ezra would have been well acquainted with. The, The invisible armies of the Lord that surround his chosen servant, right? It's the kind of story that my friend James likes to regale me with when I express anxiety or doubt. Which I do. And then he tells me to stop. And then we argue. And why do we argue? Because Ezra's biblical knowledge doesn't stop there. He also knows other things, too, doesn't he? So do I. (laughs) So do you. He knows, for example, that Moses' calling was to bring the Israelites to the Promised Land, and did Moses enter the Promised Land? It's not a trick question. No, he didn't. (laughs) Moses did not enter the Promised Land. He died on the doorstep. He knows that God handed over Job to Satan. Like, here you go. And we could, I mean, there's more to this story than that, obviously. But he knows that. <coughs> he knows that. He knows that Elisha himself, the prophet from whom I told that brief story about the Arameans, Elisha himself died of a protracted illness, slowly, over the course of time. Do you think he didn't pray for healing from that illness that he eventually died from? And Ezra knows that life entails suffering. (coughs) And he does know that God called him to Jerusalem. Just like we have callings in our life to go from point A to point B, whatever it might be, whatever it might look like, whatever risks it is. He knows that, just as you know it. He knows that's the calling. Gather together these people and these Levites and these, these things that we'll talk about later and go to Jerusalem. But that's all he knows. And sometimes that's all you know. Often, usually, I would say, all we know is that God has called me to go from point A to point B. But you know what? You may not even arrive at point B. Well, all of them make it there. I mean, hundreds of people are traveling. God's purposes could still be fulfilled, and half of them could die on the way, including Israel. He doesn't know. So is it faithlessness to say, you know what, Artaxerxes, the Persian king at this time, maybe you could send a few hundred soldiers with us. Is that faithlessness, to want that? And I don't think this is an easily answered question. I I know I feel like I'm building up to a strident answer, and I'm really not. I'm painting the problem. (laughs) You guys get to have the answers. I'm not sure if that's what good preaching looks like, but it is. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the problem. God bless you. Have a good week. (laughs) But I I think it's okay to say that this is a question that every Christian has to deal with in their life. When do we seek the help and assistance of others, of Christian brothers and sisters, or or the pagan or whatever secular world, non-believers? When do we seek the help of other people? And when do we say, you know what? As we're so prone to say, and rightfully so, God's got this. God is in charge, and I can step forward confidently with courage. And I would say you have to ask yourself that a lot, because it's not always going to be one way or the other. And I would say, if you legalistically go one way or the other and say, God's on my side, and so, you know, I will never ask the pagan king for soldiers, and always take that route, that it, that's a form of, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but it's, it's a form of heresy in a way, and I'll might be a strong word. I'm not sure that's the word I want. It's a form of something wrong. <laughs> Less eloquent, but maybe more true. Um, and likewise, and maybe it's easier for us to see, likewise, if we go the other extreme, we say, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're, all, we're always needing help. We always, we never trust God. And so we, everything has to be perfectly safe, and everything has to be in order, and we're not going to take any risks. We're just going to ensure the heck out of everything That also seems like a very poor witness to the living God who interacts and acts in the world today. And just to unpack that a little bit more, if we simply have faith all the time that God will take care of everything in our lives, it very quickly, very easily, bleeds into this sense of becoming an island unto yourself. And you no longer need your brothers and sisters. And you no longer need people people generally speaking. Again, this is not just about the body of Christ, this is about our communities as a whole, about Champaign-Urbana, about the people next door, about the people that if God is just going to sort of sovereignly and mystically take care of all of your things and you don't need anybody, that seems very anti-gospel, you know? Jesus sends out his people, you know, in pairs. He sends out community, creates communities wherever two or more are gathered in my name, etc. I could go on about that, but to be a community we, is, is not just a, a, a desire, it's a need. We need each other. And God wants us to need each other. And so that I think that's, there, there are times when it's like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I need help. I need to be careful. I need to be... Yeah, so I think I've made that point. And yet, there are times when God calls us out and says, "Take this chance." In fact, there are many times when God says, "This this won't look this won't look normal to people, especially your friends or family who aren't Christians. This will look dicey, risk-taking, and unwise." But if you feel that God's put it on your heart, then you better follow him and do it. And it, people will say that's dicey and unwise, and that's okay. And you'd be like, "Well, I'm going to Jerusalem, and we're going to pray about it." And you know what? It is unwise. I think Ezra would have said, "It's not a wise thing to go take an unguarded caravan across those those arid countries." And he did it. So he ends up not asking the king for help. Also, no, not because God told him not to. God is mostly silent throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Mostly silent. There's no no sense here that God said, "Do not ask the king." You know, it's not one of these things where take only a you know, um, I've lost my train of thought, but you know, just, just take a staff or whatever. No, it's not one of these things. It's on Ezra. It, Ezra makes the decision. God doesn't tell him to not ask for help. And he, it's not because he knows prophetically that no harm will come to him. He didn't have some prophetic dream, you know, go to Jerusalem, no harm will befall you, etc. Nothing like that. He's just embarrassed. He doesn't want the king to know his fears or bring dishonor to God by appearing faithless in his purposes. Oddly enough, when you take this to its logical conclusion, here's what's going on. Ezra is willing to risk his convoy, his life, his people's lives, putting them all on the line to be a better witness to the king of Persia, and indeed Persians as a whole, the Persian Empire. He's willing to lay down his life, or at least risk his life, to be a better witness for them. I mean, really, it's for them. That's a rather remarkable thing. These are a chaotic, violent people. Wikipedia Persian Empire. (laughs) Uh, You know, read. It's, It's not hard. They worship violent and chaotic gods. That's who Ezra's willing to take this chance for. It's for the king, not for him. And how terrifying do you think that was for Ezra? I tried to put myself in his shoes, which isn't too hard, because I think I have a couple things in common with Ezra. Ezra seems to be something of a bookish nerd. Uh, this is the best way I can describe him. He's known for his, attentive, his, for his study of the law. He's a, he's a bookworm. He's not like Moses, who was raised to be an adventurous Egyptian prince. I mean, they, they really... He's, he's not like uh, Abraham or, or uh, David, a warrior king. He's not. He's, not, he's he, he is probably just kind of small and not particularly brave, I'm guessing. And out of the blue comes this call to say, go to Jerusalem with all this gold and silver that we'll talk about, and all these things that people are going to want to kill you and take, out of the blue. And he says, OK, God, I'll follow this call. Ezra definitely wants military, uh, the military on his side. He's terrified. He's studious. We don't make good warriors, you know? <laughs> Laura told me yesterday that she liked a man in uniform. So Dallas and Company is the best I'm going to be able to do that. <laughs> so, things your wife says. <laughs> um, oh, sorry about that. <clears throat> anyway, so he doesn't want to go to Jerusalem without armed guards, but he's going to. Now, why would he care? Why would Ezra care about the Persian king or the, the pagan groups of people? And it's good just to be re-reminded again. Um, also, is it just me or is it getting a little warm in here? Uh, if somebody wants to turn on the AC back there. Uh, that probably wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, at least, maybe it's just the message, but I'm getting a little hot under the couch. Okay. Um Actually, it's first time we've ever turned on the AC in this room, so. Forward. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, hopefully, the AC works. Ooh, did you hear that? That's a good sign. Okay. Um, So it's good to be reminded that the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, go from your country, your people, your father's household, the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is part of the mandate of the Jewish nation from day one with Abraham, that you are to be a blessing to all the nations. This is not, of course, it finds its apex, its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the blessing for all nations. But that that was the cradle. That was the uh, initial making of the cradle of Israel, that you will be a blessing to all nations. And Ezra is a man of the law. He knows his Bible. He knows this. Or Isaiah, uh, writing a few hundred years earlier than this, uh, Isaiah 49, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. In other words, God's saying it's, it's bigger than it's bigger than restoring Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. A very famous Isaiah passage. But, you know, this notion of the salvation of God going out to the ends of the earth is not something that Jesus originated. It's something he fulfilled. And we, we, we forget that. I tend to forget that. It's Easily reading all these passages about Israel fighting other nations and stuff, their intent, their purpose, the reason Ezra is willing to lift, risk his life for the Persian king, for witness to the Persian king, they are to be a light to the nations. They have no enemies. A point I keep reiterating over and over again: we have no enemies. Full stop. That's the faith Ezra wishes to show. Now, it's also good to note here, they set forth with a tremendous amount of treasure, or enlightening to note, I should say. I'm actually not sure if I put this on the slide or not. What's the next slide? Oh, sorry. Oh, that was the Isaiah passage. What's the next slide? There is no next slide. There is no next slide. Okay, I didn't put it up there. Um, I'll just read this. Uh, this is the next passage from Isaiah. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, namely Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers. I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold, and the articles that the king, the Persian king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them, so this is the gold they're taking on this trip that they're fasting and praying for. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, which is roughly 24 tons. 24 tons of silver. Silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold, it goes on. These are large caravans and there's hundreds of people going along with them, and it is heavily laden with gold and silver. If you don't think there were people leaving uh, this uh, Ahiva Canal saying, we need to talk to some folks, because they're going unguarded, I mean, that would have been a low-hanging fruit, to say the least. I said to them, after he lists all the valuable things, Ezra said to them, you, as well as these articles, are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So until you tent the temple. Guard them carefully until you get them to the temple before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and the Levites receive the silver and gold and sacred articles that have been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. So all that happened there is they said, you are consecrated to the Lord for this service, just like the gold and silver is Guard this with your life. Remember, this isn't soldiers he's speaking to. It's people like you and me on the road, priests and, and whatnot, say, well, this is, this is your charge. Here's 200 tons of silver. There's a, a barren road with robbers on both sides. And have a good day. Um, <laughs> but don't worry. We're going to pray. <laughs> I want to I, I press this home because I think we read through the book these books forgetting what it takes, forgetting the courage it takes to truly have faith in these moments. We live a very easy life here in middle class America. We don't often have to step out in courage and faith like this. Which isn't to say we don't have to step out in courage and faith, but not very often like this. There are Christians out in the world who have to daily, but generally not us. And so it's good to be reminded of of the fear that goes along with this and the real uh, chances they're taking. So implicit in all this, And this is what I want to emphasize here: is the acknowledgement that they're not up to the task. They can't do it on their own. This is very simple math. They're going unguarded, four hundred miles. They can't guard this stuff on their own. God has to protect them. It's that simple. It's God or nothing. Ezra and Nehemiah. Sorry, I'm checking my time here. I will finish up soon. I promise. Ezra and Nehemiah are what we call, what I call, unmiracled books. There's no miracles in them. There's no God doesn't. It's not like reading about Moses or Samson or or Jesus for that matter. There nothing happens that breaks the laws of time and physics or anything like that. Just normal things. I think that's a good thing, and I'm going to get into that into some detail here, not too much detail, (laughs) or glaze over detail. (laughs) Uh, But I want to talk about this because I think this is important. There's something healthy going on here that I think, for us as a church, we need to pay attention to. There is a debate within the church that I strongly encourage you to not care about and to not have a horse in that race. And that is the debate about cessationism, whether miracles still occur (coughs) in this time and place, or whether they ceased with roughly the end of Acts, with the end of the life of the apostles and Paul. Paul being an apostle, doesn't matter. that's a debate that goes on. It has been going on for centuries. It probably will probably go on for quite a, quite a while. Um, I sort of don't care about it that much. Um, I, having witnessed one miracle in my life, my, I, I can't really ascribe to the God-doesn't-do-miracles thing because I don't have a lot of confusion at that point. <laughs> Although if I hadn't witnessed that single miraculous event, I, I wonder if I would have <coughs> a to that theology. But regardless of that, I believe God still works in this world, and I believe He still does miracles. But there is something about it that troubles me, and that's and I think it's contained within this book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and within this within this narrative, this unmiracled narrative. And by the way, it's not just like Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are not unusual in this regard. I mean, you can think of, for example, one of the most famous and godly people of the Bible was King David. What are the miracles that we associate with King David? Trick question. We don't associate The closest we can get is the stone and Goliath, which isn't really a miracle in any classic sense. It really is a stone hitting somebody bigger than David and knocking him out. Um, there are no miracles associated with him or Solomon. So miracles tend to come in these sort of concentrated, you know, like the prophet Elijah or Moses, or particularly in the person of Jesus. They come in these bursts, and boy, when they come, they come in tremendous bursts. But the biblical narrative as a whole across the span of hundreds of years is is not, you you don't see miracles popping up behind every burning bush. It's not as common as we might think when we talk about the Bible. So it's helpful to think about why miracles happen and what they're for and what they do, and that's a longer discussion I have time for. But I want to suggest one thing. In this instance, I think the theologian R.C. Sproul is right. I don't think his conclusion is right. R.C. Sproul argues that there are no more miracles, they ended with God doesn't act in the world anymore. I think that's not true. Like I said, I have personal experience about that. I I can't argue that and won't. But he does say, he talks about why miracles happen when they do in the Bible and why they don't when they don't. And miracles are often a case of establishing authority. That is often what they're for. Uh, Think of Jesus or, you know, Moses really struggled with authority. I mean, people did not want to give Moses authority. God, in fact, Moses said to God, they're not going to, remember we had to go to the Egyptians, they're not going to believe me, they're not going to, why would they listen to me? God's like miracles. You know, throw your staff on the ground. I will, my power will give you authority. And likewise with Jesus and the disciples, they could perform miracles powerfully, according to the biblical text, and that gives them authority. And out of that authority, we get this. The miracles of Jesus and the disciples, the New Testament in particular, obviously, said we need to pay attention to what these people say, and what they write, because we've never seen anything like this. So it denotes authority. Now I've seen a miracle, and it gives me almost no authority. It's one of the one of the least dramatic miracles. <laughs> I don't tell the story very often, because it's not it's not flames of fire shooting out of a bush. It's not one of those things. And I think about that, and I think that makes sense to me. You can imagine if you had people here in the front of the church, uh, each of them missing a limb, let's say, or some thing like that. And I prayed for them, and each one of them regrew their limbs right here in the service. Um, which God could do. I that's that's not me doing it. It's God working through me. No, it's God could do that. There's no every time we say God can't do something, we need to be very careful. And this is why R.C. Sproul, I think, is kind of full of it. But you know he but his points are well taken. And his point is uh, if if that happened, each one of you would suddenly pay very close attention to me. In fact, the words coming out of my mouth from that point on would almost be canonical to you. On par with the Bible, because God really gave me a tremendous amount of power and and obvious, overt, clear power, I would suddenly have a tremendous amount of power. I could speak like one of the disciples, be like, Well, did you let, did you ever grow back somebody's limb? No. Be quiet and not dog let me tell you. And I don't want that kind. I mean, I really don't. I don't think anybody in this room really does. If you do, talk to me after the service. <laughs> That's canonical power. That's the power of being able to, and here in the this story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is what i finish up with, things are going right, and what I mean by that is that Ezra knows the Torah, he knows the law, he's a man, he's a holy man, and he's preaching God's word, and people have given him authority, There isn't, you don't see in this book this tension like with Moses and the people, or even for that matter, in places with David. They're like, you know the word of God. We we trust you. There's no need for miracles. There's no need for that. There's no, I mean, what would that accomplish? God's hand of protection, if you want to call that a miracle, I suppose you could. His hand of protection is very clear. They made it to Jerusalem. They didn't lose a single life. At least it's not recorded here if they did. They gave thanks to God when they got there. And I bet they really gave thanks to God when they got there. Um, But they didn't need miracles for things to be in right relationship. And here comes a paradox. It almost seems to me that the healthier a community might be, the healthier a church might be, and the more biblical authority, the more we hold to biblical authority, maybe the less we need of that. Maybe love and commitment and uh, these things are more important. And I say that with the caveat that I have seen a miracle, and I know that some of you have experienced miraculous things in your lives that have been very important to you, and God still moves in that way. But it's not its not the drama of the parting of the Red Sea. It's not, it's not an authority-establishing event. Does that make sense? Right. So I, these are the thoughts, all that came from <laughs> that passage of Ezra and, and not asking the king uh, for um, for help and then the, the continued lack of God's working I, I use the term advisely, working in miraculous ways in these books, he's working all through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah but there's no miracles to me this creates a model for our life and for my life a life that is not about flashiness or authority setting events because I have my authority my authority is God and I have my marching orders which is the Bible and what if I shouldn't need anything else. Now God is, God gives more than we can imagine or ask for. I don't know why He chose to show me a miracle. Um, actually, I, if, as the story goes, I actually prayed against the miracle or didn't pray for it. It was a miracle that <coughs> Laura and I experienced together, because Laura prayed that God would show her something beyond something beyond herself, something beyond this world, something inexplicable, a miracle, so she would know that God was real. And I said in the same small group, I said, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> do not put the Lord thy God to the test. And God smacked me down. <laughs> Establishing a pattern in our relationship, which continues uh, to this very day. Well, let me tell you, honey, how it is. And then and whack, whack. Um, it's true. And that was before Laura and I were even dating. It's before Laura realized I was sexy. she thought I was not sexy God opens the eyes of the blind Um, (laughs) you better wrap it up Um, but it is true and it's a serious point that God still does work in miraculous ways even for those who don't expect it Um, and I will wrap it up (laughs) shall we pray? yes Lord, I'm grateful that we can't put you into any kind of a box. and grateful that we can't control you and that we can't say with surety what you will or you will not do at any given time or any given moment. You are Lord, we are not. Um, and Lord, I, I pray that you would bless us as a church, bless us as a fellowship, such that we see your power at work and that we see your hand of protection, even as Ezra saw it, on the dark roads of our life. Lord, may we turn to you and fast and pray, even as our spiritual ancestors did hundreds of years ago on that road, fearful for their lives, but they look to you, Lord, to be a witness. And Lord, we want to look to you as well to be a witness. We will take risks. Lord, we will step out in faith, and yet we also will reach out to our brothers and sisters for help, and we will not be independent in that regard. We are a community. Lord, teach us wisdom. Teach us how to follow you and how to trust in you. And Lord, may we remember uh, your sacrifice for us and our tremendous grace that we walk in every day as we go now to your table. And the Lord's table is the Lord's table. We invite anyone who's in a relationship with Jesus to join us in community.